listening to Legal Talk Network. Hi, and welcome to another edition of Special Reports on the Legal Talk Network. It's Joe Patrice from Above the Law and Thinking Like a Lawyer. Also with me is my usual partner from Thinking Like a Lawyer, Ellie Mistal. What's up? Uh, we're hosting this show from the West in New York in Times Square, where we're at Above the Law's Academy for Private Practice. So joining me right now, I have the panelists from our first panel of the day. I'm going to go through everybody in order as they're sitting here. I got It's loud because people love us. Yes, it is. It is loud, but you know, hey, it's a it's a live show. We're uh, we're not. Well, it's not really live. We're recording it, it's but but no we're we're on location. It it feels live to us. Uh, I have John Balistrieri here. We have Nicole Braddock. We got Rochelle Washington and Gaston Krupp. Welcome to the welcome to the show. Uh, your first panel today. You were talking about well about what this whole this whole conference is about. Starting up small firms and the various things you need to do. How do you feel the panel went, everybody? I thought Nicole did a great job. <laughs> Nicole did an awesome job. It wasn't just me. You guys are great. It was, it was a good interactive group. Um, I think the audience was very engaged. I think it went really well. So have all of you guys started your own firm at some point? I have. I have, too. Three out of four, I think. <laughs> yeah, I have. One, I'm the odd man out. But you, start, you like started a company, I've though. I've started businesses. Which is different. Yeah, yes. I, same I, I worked Same at a different. firm, if yeah. that counts. <laughs> well, yeah, that's. I mean, I was asking because that's very impressive to me. I have never started anything. I've just been hired for things and then fired from things. <laughs> um, one of the more interesting things I thought about your panel um, when you, was when you got to the conversation about outsourcing, outsourcing your staff, outsourcing your office space even. Can you talk a little bit more about that? About especially, I thought it was interesting uh, talking about not having, not even having a secretary for your own work. Isn't that for me when I was when I was in practice, which was a long time ago, and I was very bad at it. But like, I couldn't have survived without my secretary. So like, how do you suggest people who are starting their own firms really kind of overcome that that basically lack of overhead? Well, I think my experience was the same as yours, Ellie. When I started uh, as a first-year associate, I had my own secretary, and it seemed like the biggest uh, you know, piece of overkill uh, <laughs> you could ever imagine. And then as time went on, you know, I practiced in big law firms for 15 years. By the time I was done, I think there was like one secretary for every 8.2 lawyers in the firm, and even that felt unnecessary. So I think we're on a spectrum where you know, technology is replacing a lot of the things that um, you know, administration administrative assistants used to be able to do for us, but at the same time, the value of someone that could help you in your practice in some form or fashion has just gone up. Uh, so, you know, I think the titles may have changed, but I would, uh, I would imagine that everybody here has benefited from the help that they get from other people on a daily basis to manage their practices. So, uh, you know, what works for one firm in, in terms of whether you have an associate do certain things or an administrative assistant do certain things uh, or you do them yourself is, is probably going to change depending on who needs to do the work. But um, I, I think when you talk about needing help, I think the, the one thing that we all probably agree on is that you need help and you need help on a daily basis. As Gaston said uh, when we were there, you have to know yourself. McGaston said that he and his partners wouldn't have patience with someone else. Okay, but I would say if you do want, and this was kind of my fundamental point in there, is what do you want your work to be? Um, David Boyce, who does business litigation like I do, loves to say that it's a team sport, and I agree. And if you want to do, say, the kind of work that, that our firm does, big business litigation, often multi-jurisdictional, you're going to need a team in place, and that absolutely includes your administrative staff. But again, it depends on you. I know an excellent real estate lawyer. He's a solo, does everything himself. 
doesn't seem to have any problem with it. I think it depends on the lawyer and it depends on what you want to do. And outsourcing that type of stuff has become a really viable option. And if you think about, like, a lot of solos are solos because they want to be alone. They want to be running their practice. They don't want to manage anybody. And you bring on a staff, you bring on somebody, a secretary or anybody, you all of a sudden have to manage that person. If you have like a virtual assistant that you can just pop task request out to, format this document, boom, you get it back, you're done. There's no managing, there's no payroll, there's none of that. You're, just, you're still practicing on your own, but you're pulling in the resources when you need it. Um, that's becoming a really popular model for solo small firms. And not only that, but just to spin off of that, what's really important is a lot of times small firm lawyers don't know what the next month will be. You know, January is an indicative of February or July or any other future month. So thinking about bringing on permanent staff is often, you know, terrifying. You, they just get scared. Am I going to be able to afford this responsibility that I've now taken on? So outsourcing is a great opportunity for lawyers to be able to use someone when they need them, when they have a project that's available to pay them from, um, and not have that long-term commitment and worry about not being able to pay them in the later months. And then as they build, they can expand and use permanent staff if necessary. It's almost like the task rabbitfication of small law practice. That's exactly right. One thing that came up in the discussion that I found kind of interesting was the discussion of offices. And I mean, that, that's, that's the big overhead. And when, when to get an office, when not to get an office. One thing that was said was, uh, I think, guess you, I think it was you who uh, had somebody basically go under because they got a bad lease, right? Yeah, well, I, I, it was actually a firm. Yeah. More than, more, and, and it was it Dewey? No, it was not Dewey. <laughs> it was not Dewey. But um, it, it was a firm, and you, know, you, you realize that when a firm goes down, hundreds of people are impacted. And it, it gets to the point where you know, there's a lot of things in our life now that we used to pay for that we now are free and we would never pay for again. Uh, the one thing that never seems to change is that real estate is expensive, particularly real estate in New York and other metropolitan cities is expensive and continues to get more expensive. So I think the decision of what to do with your space is of critical importance for a small firm and, and even for a big firm because other than your salaries and your, you know, uh, that's your number one hard cost is rent. And, um, you know, at one of my prior firms, there used to be a guy who would literally commandeer uh, partner meetings with hundreds of people on the phone to talk about how he got the landlord in Houston to agree to throw in free coffee. And this was like big news and so important. But I think it was because everybody at the firm appreciated that um, even though there may have been hundreds of partners, the number one thing that was keeping us from making more money was the fact that we were paying for a Class A office space in all these cities. So uh, it's a big, it's a big issue. It's a big expense, and it's important. And if I could just add, you know, I've been saying it goes to, you know, what do you want? What do you want your work to be about? Um, our firm is in Lower Manhattan, and you know, we're 20 times the size of when we started because I started as a solo. We're never leaving, and that's. That goes again to what do we want, and part of that is it's the easiest place to commute to, and I have staff all over, and I want that to be. And the other is the flavor of the firm we're trying to present. We are not a midtown firm. We litigate against and with them every day of the week, but for us, we actually have cheaper space in part because of what we're trying to sell, on top of the fact that we're in court all the time, so we're near the courthouses and whatnot, so that the, the Class A space consideration was just never one that came to us because of the kind of firm.
firm we are. Other firms, I think, need to be in Midtown as an example of New York, how it works here. Can you guys, uh, just for our younger listeners and me, can you talk a little bit about the difference between Class A office space, which you guys have thrown around a lot, and uh, versus, I imagine, like trailer office space? <laughs> like, what's, what's that distinction like? I mean, I think our building is Class B, but I like our suite well enough, and I think, I'm not guessing I may actually know the distinctions. It's just not the very top high end. I mean, when... Uh, I go to depositions in what I imagine a Class A office space in Midtown. There's, you know, the Italian marble in the lobby, and there's the internal staircases, and and there's the, I think, Italian, again, leather for the reception areas, and that's the very high end. I think there's actually A, A+, plus, A-, minus. I'm not sure, but I, would, I was using Gasson's phrase about, like, the very high end space. Some clients need it, others don't. I would think of it as any place you'd walk in as a client and be pissed off that you're paying for it, that's usually a Class A office space. Yeah, or you could say, what am I looking at? <laughs> right? If you're looking at the Statue of Liberty, there's a good chance it's pretty nice office space. Or if you're looking up Park Avenue, if you're looking at, you know, your garage wall, then it's probably not, you know. And, and if I get, you know, with Nicole's point, uh, a law school classmate of mine and David Latz, who uh, was a partner at Big Firm A and we moved into Big Firm B, when he was moving on, he invited some of his general counsel clients to meet with him at Big Firm A. And he said, like, every single one complained about how nice the office space was because they had just gone through some major renovation in, I think, the City Court building. But like, oh, this is where my fees are going. Like, every single one mentioned it. So Nicole's point is not just a joke, that depending on your client, some of them may be annoyed if they think you're spending too much on your office space. Well, that actually reminds me once. I had a lateral interview with a um, large New York firm, one of the white shoe firms, and they didn't really care about me. They didn't really care about talking about anything about the firm but they were very apologetic about their office space. Um, and it struck me as this is probably a very weird place because they have a client list to kill for, they've been in business for so many years, uh, they're on a you know very nice address, it seemed like a fine enough building for me, but they're so insecure that they're telling prospective laterals that you know we think our office is enough to snuff. I think it tells a lot about the culture of a firm, A, what type of place they're comfortable working out of, and then how they relate to it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think our most common of the deadly sins is vanity. Like, we're concerned about what other people are thinking about. And, and it came through there when they had nothing to justify to you. Right. And above the law, your subscription fees, which you don't pay, are going towards <laughs> really, really, like, class, like, Z, Z minus. Uh, our offices, offices are exactly what you pay for <laughs> with a free website. I, I, think, I think GCs used to actually want that. I think they used, right, to, right. They used to want to go in and see beautiful offices because it gave them confidence that they were hiring the best. And like since GC started becoming, you know, uh, their budgets are shrinking, all of a sudden they don't care about that, they care about how much are you paying me to, to, to stay in this. And that's, if you look at, there's a lot of data now, like office size per partner is shrinking dramatically, I think in response to clients being pissed off about it. Exactly. Joe, you were geeking out about invoices, I believe, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, you well, were really having a full-on nerdgasm no. about invoices. Well, it was <laughs> sort, of, sort of, yeah. No, I mean, John made this point, you made this point about the invoice as the, like, probably the most circulated client-facing document. The reason it kind of hit me was, given that the point of this whole affair is teaching people how to run a, pract a small practice, that's something I never would have thought of. But when you said it, I was like, oh yeah, that's really true. That would be a very important document. I mean, and it's short and easy to read. We, uh, one of my colleagues recently filed a motion for summary judgment in um, New York County Commercial Division where we had to give paper copies. Uh, it's, it's 
five-year litigation, I think there were seven boxes that we had to provide to the court. Now, we provided by email a copy of that to the clients. They're not going to see any of that. Maybe they'll look at the briefs, maybe. And we have general counsel and all that stuff, but they're going to look at the invoice every month. And simple things, like you don't want typos in there. You know, something is, or you want them to understand what it means or, or to be consistent. Because if I were a general counsel, and I actually am for some nonprofit stuff, and I look at the invoices, if I don't understand it, I get a little concerned of like, geez, I relied on them for that real estate transaction. Was everything right in that? Because th that's the third error I've seen in this invoice. Yeah. That's huge. Invoicing is probably, as you said, one of the most read things that the client is looking at. Uh, sometimes I think they may look at it with a magnifying glass, but the yeah. point is they're looking at that. And if they see errors there, they think that those errors may be reflected in the work. Um, you're also speaking to the client in that invoice. So, you know, make sure that they're understandable to the, to the client. I love the idea of the no charge on the client bills. You know, you put something that you've done on there. Don't not put it on there. Agreed, you know, put totally. it on there and say that you're not charging the client for it. And more importantly, be consistent with your billing. I wanted to make this point in the session earlier today because people often fail to realize how important it is to send the bill consistently, right? Your clients, especially in a consumer-based practice area, they receive their mortgage bill. It's due on a certain date every single month. The car note's due on a certain date every single month. Solo lawyers have a tendency to wait two and three months on a bill because they don't want to get to their invoicing or they don't have a time management system. Then they pop a $5,000 bill on a regular person and wonder why they can't get paid. It's really important to have a good billing system, and that's also what the business plan will encourage you to create. Rochelle, I wanted to talk a little bit about the other hat you wear, with the work you do with the DC Bar, and you kind of run something that's somewhat like this, a, a kind of a conference to help people figure out how to set up a firm. Like, talk a little bit about, uh, about your work with that. Oh, we have, uh, we did an inaugural event last year mm -hmm. called Practice 360, a day for lawyers and law firms. Uh, and this was an event that ran about 20 programs. There were four sessions each hour. And we focused on practical classes for lawyers. Uh, these weren't CLE courses. This is about how to, you know, use the form tool for document automation. Um, we talked about things that you need to know about malpractice insurance, how to select your malpractice insurance provider. Uh, we talked about things like a day in the life of a criminal lawyer. And these sessions gave things that you can't find in the books, like where you get your badge in the courtroom, where the cheat sheet is, where the lawyers meet, you know, where to take your client after arraignment. It's not a sign. You know, these are things that you wouldn't get to know, and lawyers feel really insecure about those things, and they don't always have a resource to go to to get that type of information. So Practice 360 was oriented towards that, and we hold that now annually. We're looking forward to it next year. Yeah, it's very wishful thinking that there's a place to take your client after arraignment that isn't, <laughs> no, that no, isn't no, the jail. No, I mean, <laughs> no, <laughs> not after arraignment, after your hearing. <laughs> I'm not a criminal lawyer. <laughs> I am not a criminal lawyer. <laughs> That's awesome. All right. Well, I thanks everybody for participating in this show and sitting down and talking with us here. So we're reached the end of this. I want to thank everybody. And uh, if our listeners have any questions or wish to follow up, is there a way to reach any of you? Like this is Gaston. Feel free to send me an email or try to contact me on Twitter at Krub. Um, read my column on Above the Law and give me feedback. Um, I'm always happy to uh, hear from people, and I uh, enjoy my interactions with people that have approached me. And my Twitter handle is at ATTY Washington, uh, and you can find me and more information about our programs at uh, dcbar.org. 
I'm also on Twitter, Nicole Braddock. My last name is B-R-A-D-I-C-K. And email is nbraddock at curalegal.com. Uh, this is Ballas Cherry. I'm not expecting anyone to know how to spell that, but I'm on the Above the Law website as well. My email is there. That's, that's true. We had two Above the Law contributors here, so... Nobody can ever reach me. Yeah, well, no, and, and that's probably for the best. So this is another edition of Special Reports. Joe Patrice on behalf of Ellie. Until next time, thanks for listening. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.